This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, We have a busy day, a lot to discuss, as usual. More uh, unique topics than ever before. Uh, Not just talking about the war. We're talking a little bit about the future of social media and media in particular. And a lot about politics. Senator Tom Cotton's queued up, so I don't want to take too much time away from the top. We did have the chance to speak to Admiral Kirby. I just spoke to him on Fox and Friends. He's in Germany. Forty nations showed up giving some hardware to Ukraine. Whatever the reason, it seems people are motivated to help more than ever. Maybe they see the carnage. And it's so obvious between evil uh, and not so evil. Let's, so let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This has been the Russian playbook since uh, since even when the invasion was brand new, that this was really the West against Russia and NATO against Russia and the United States against Russia, and that's just not the case. Uh, this is about Russia's unprovoked war inside Ukraine. Russia has achieved none of its strategic objectives. Uh, That is John Kirby moments ago. Allies rallying in Germany for Ukraine. Forty nations map out how they could do more, as Russians claim. There is now a proxy war between them and NATO. Also, it's estimated Russia has already lost 15,000 men. I think it's more. Number two. If Title 42 is removed, according to the Biden administration, it would mean 18,000 people a day coming across the border, which would in turn annually mean there would be more than 6 million people coming across the border. That's two times the size of the city of Houston. Unbelievable. Biden's quest to thoroughly dismantle the border gets derailed. Now a judge stayed uh, Title 42. This is Kevin McCarthy leads a Republican delegation to Texas to see the chaos for himself as a National Guardsman's body is recovered after he drowned trying to save an illegal immigrant who happened to be trafficking drugs. Crickets from the White House. Number one. You know, there's that account, Defiant L's, Business Insider. They had a tweet that said, you know, how great it was that Jeff Bezos was buying the Washington Post. You know, now they had a tweet that said this is the end of civilization because Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Instagram or, or the Facebook of Zuckerberg, I feel like they censor 10x what Twitter does. Uh, Musk takes Twitter, $46 billion to finance and massive to take over this massive uh, thing from Silicon Valley. And the left is panicking, looking for safe spaces and a puppy to hug. It also is fascinating that founder Jack Dorsey applauds the takeover. Let's bring in Senator Tom Cotton. Senator, does this matter? Does this matter to politics and communication and to the country? Hey, Brian, it's uh, good to be on with you. Uh, well, I think there's a the big problem with all of these left-wing social media sites and censoring normal conservative Americans, the kind of people I represent across the state of Arkansas who feel that you have uh, these very uh, progressive 
um, in many cases, 20-something kids in Silicon Valley who are targeting them. Uh, I applaud Elon Musk's statement about freedom of speech um, and letting people who you don't agree with, sometimes you don't agree with strongly, uh, also have a platform to speak. And I hope that that's the policy that he pursues in Twitter. And I hope that that also uh, prompts other social media sites uh, to begin to be, uh, once again, be more even-handed in the way they treat conservative voters' viewpoints. Here's that quote. If in doubt, uh, let, let, let the speech, let, let it exist. Uh, it would have, you know, if, if it's a, you know, a, a gray area, I would say let, let, the, let the tweet exist. And a good sign as to whether so, there is free speech is, uh, is, is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like? And if that is the case, then we have free speech. And it's, it's damn annoying when someone you don't like says something you don't like. That is a sign of a healthy, functioning, uh, free speech situation. Uh, and that's when maybe things go back to previous 2016. Ever since President Trump won, there's been a war of social media against conservatives, in my humble opinion. And I think he's going to unmask the algorithm that was allowing uh, accounts uh, being shadow banned or banned entirely. I'm very curious to see... What he discovers when he goes in there, are you? Yeah, I'm very curious as well. I wonder what all those uh, folks at Twitter right now are doing. They may be uh, shredding documents and throwing files like the last days of Enron 20 years ago. Absolutely. The, Brian, the, the sentiment that you, that you just played from Elon Musk would have been a commonplace banality 10 years ago on the left. To say nothing of the last 75 years, organizations uh, like the ACLU existed to defend the rights of any person to speak their mind. Remember, the ACLU and similar organizations years ago, Brian, would stand up for the rights of neo-Nazis to march through communities that had high numbers of Holocaust survivors. Today, they wouldn't defend a conservative who says he thinks every unborn child has a right to live. That's how far uh, this left has moved in America on free speech. They used so many uh, liberals used to be free speech absolutists to the point that they would side with grotesque neo-Nazi marches. But they still say you can have your peace. Today, they will censor normal mainstream conservative opinions that have the support of large majorities of Americans. Brian, you may recall in the summer of 2020 during the BLM riots, um, when I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that ended up causing a meltdown at that liberal media company and getting their editor fired. I'd also said on Twitter that we should have no quarter uh, for violent insurrectionists. Now, Twitter contacted me and threatened to uh, lock down my account if I didn't delete that tweet within just a few minutes because they said I was calling for atrocities and war crimes against protesters. We gave them numerous examples of other senators, all Democrats, using that commonplace statement in American politics. And in the end, they didn't lock down the account. But that's what conservatives everywhere face. Now, if you're not a United States senator, if you're not the host of Fox and Friends or a highly rated syndicated radio program, Brian, you don't have that kind of recourse. Just think about all the Americans out there who are being censored immediately when they post something that all these liberal uh, censors at Twitter or Facebook or Google or Apple don't like. Have you gotten on uh, President Trump's Truth Social yet? I have not, Brian. I have a tough time just keeping up as it is with my own Twitter and Facebook accounts and interacting with our Kansans and conservatives across the country. Um, but uh, I, like I said, I, I hope that 
all of these platforms will follow uh, the principles that Elon Musk just outlined uh, and encourage their members to be respectful, cordial, dignified, civil, but also have robust and serious debate about ideas as opposed to censoring people we don't like. So Sergey Lervov, as we switch over to the Ukraine war today, says Western military's action means NATO essentially is engaged in war with Russia. The warning to not underestimate the threat of a nuclear war. Vladimir Klitschko, the former heavyweight champion, brother of the mayor of Kiev, um, said this, cut 31. I believe if you study the history of the past, for instance, 20 years, the country of Russia has been uh, totally brainwashed and the civilians were brainwashed that the, the West or the free world, so to speak, is our danger for Russia. Now we have learned in the past as well that whatever the statement was coming from Russia, it's all about threatening. It's all about to provide this jeopardy to the free world. And um, with this, Russia is trying to conquer the world, conquer the free world. By using the term nuclear war, what, 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 what is your takeaway from the foreign secretary saying that again? Brian, I think uh, Sergei Lavrov, just like Russian generals, just like Vladimir Putin over the last two months, uh, has used the, the threat or the specter of nuclear attacks to try to intimidate the West, to try to get uh, United States and NATO to back down in our support for Ukraine. Regrettably, uh, at times, it has seemed that Joe Biden has been intimidated. You may recall uh, last week that Vladimir Putin celebrated the new test of an intercontinental ballistic missile. Development of that missile, it was not a substantially to Russia's nuclear capabilities, but it does obviously upgrade their missile forces. Just like we are in the process of upgrading our missiles, Brian, just like we conduct routine tests, right. and we give them advance notice as well. However, Joe Biden ended up first postponing one of those routine tests and then canceling it. And the explanation was we didn't want to do anything provocative towards Russia. Well, if that's provocative in Joe Biden's mind, I worry what Vladimir Putin will think he can get away with next. Uh, that is true. Uh, so we're seeing a much more aggressive Western world led by uh, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin came out yesterday and said, look, one of our goals is to weaken Russia so they don't do this again. Now, I love that sentiment, but is that wise to say in the public forum and nationalize this and not make it so much Ukraine sovereignty and the West backing it up as opposed to Russia being weakened? Is there a legitimate danger in Senator Tom Cotton's mind that the Russian people will rally around their flag? Uh, Brian, I think your instincts that touch on a lot of sensible points. Um, the Biden administration, and Joe Biden in particular, has a tendency to default into grandiose aspirations in this war. Um, you know, Joe Biden said that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. He talks about abstractions like democracy versus autocracy. Uh, Secretary Austin said our goal is to weaken Russian military. Uh, I think at this point, the Ukrainian people and probably the American people would settle for something much more concrete and immediate which is helping Ukraine win this war. Understood. We should help Ukraine win, the, win this war by getting Russian troops off of their territory. Everything else can follow from that. I hear you. Uh, do you think from, you know, you've served in the infantry. This is not hypothetical to you. 
Uh, do you think it's possible from what you see, what you've studied, what, what the intelligence you see, for them to get them out of Donbass? Is that a realistic goal? I do think that's a uh, realistic goal, Brian. Um, many people didn't think so at the beginning of this war. Uh, some people still don't. I don't think we should underestimate both the skill and the resolve and will of the Ukrainian military. They do need more assistance. The kind of fight you have in Donbass is different from the kind of fight they had outside Kyiv. Um, for your listeners who have not been in this kind of battle, imagine the battle for Kyiv would be something like a battle in and around Chicago. Very dense urban areas, lots of buildings, a lot of tall vertical buildings very favorable towards the defense. Uh, the battle in eastern Ukraine is going to be more like a battle that would have been fought in, say, Iowa or Kansas. Uh, very flat, open fields, long lines of sights, much more favorable to the offense and combined arms warfare using infantry and armor and artillery than it was in and around Kyiv. That's why it's so urgent that we get uh, Ukraine the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles and the artillery cannons that they need that were not as useful in uh, northern Ukraine. Now, regrettably, the Biden administration still seems to be on the back foot on this. We should have been sending those kind of weapons to Kyiv six or eight weeks ago, if not more, just like we should have been sending those defensive weapons, Stinger missiles and Javelin missiles, to uh, Kyiv months ago before um, Russia ever invaded. Uh, but if we get them the, the heavy weaponry they need, I do think uh, that the Ukrainian army can prevail. But time is of the essence. There's not a moment to lose. Well, when we write these checks, where's the money coming out of? Are they coming out of the defense budget, do you know? Do, where, where is this money? The $800 million? No, although that's, what, no, although that's what the Democrats would like, Brian. You know, we passed a, a bill uh, about uh, two months ago that had support for Ukraine. And the Democrats' initial uh, proposal was that all of the non-military support would be new spending. All of the military support would have to come out of America's military budget. Uh, we obviously put our foot down on that and said no. Um, but it's a combination of, of, of two main sources of funds, Brian. Uh, the president, under pre-existing law and um, spending bills, has a certain amount of money that he can repurpose for a crisis like this to provide the president uh, flexibility. And then, of course, uh, as that money gets spent, the president comes back to Congress. And I suspect sometime in the next couple of weeks, um, the president will need to come back to Congress. I hope that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi move quickly with that uh, request and don't try to tie it up with, say, additional spending for coronavirus or other domestic spending that we have a simple straight up and down vote to get Ukraine the weapons and the sport it needs immediately. Senator, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Senator Tom Cotton. Um, great to hear hear from him uh, out of Arkansas. one 408 I'll be back to take your calls in just a moment. Uh, remember, we still got to talk about immigration. Title 42, the body of a National Guard soldier comes back. Really not a word from the White House. Why? Well, he's Texas National Guard. Why that concern him? Just because he served in Kuwait, Iraq, and they put the National Guard on the border because he won't secure the border? That is despicable out of the president. This is the same president, by the way, that could not wait to find a microphone when he saw Border Patrol agents on horseback, which he thought were slapping Haitian immigrants with their reins. They weren't. They were controlling the horse. No apology, but there was quick condemnation. Remember that? Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. 
Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The pandemic is still ongoing. Uh, that uh, the public health emergency declaration should be extended. Uh, a lot of our families are benefiting from the Medicaid uh, uh, enrollment and expansions. A lot of our families are still suffering from symptomatology due to COVID-19, including long-haul COVID that rely on Medicaid and healthcare access. And so we requested that that public health emergency be extended till the end of this year and that did not expire in the near uh, future. Title 42 uh, should uh, uh, be lifted uh, and that we should focus on border management policy. Right. Uh, so this uh, congressman, Democrat, said, oh, we want won't, we want uh, pandemic aid. We got to keep that in place. But a pandemic policy of Title 42, which says you're not vaccinated. We don't know your health. We don't know who you are. You got to turn around and go home. Uh, that Title 42, which was in place in the 40s and reenacted under President Trump, well, we got to get rid of that. But my family and friends that need long-term COVID care, we got to get that in place. And it's got to all be free. That's how, how ideological these people are. You go to the border. You cannot tell me you're an American citizen who cares about our country and thinks this is okay and going to get worse. Cut 16. The Congressional Hispanic Caucus made it very clear that the Title 42 policy is a public health emergency policy that was instituted under the Trump administration during his hate and fear anti-immigrant agenda. Uh, And that because we have changed the face of the pandemic due to the heroic uh, efforts of the Biden administration, the American Rescue Plan, and Congress being able to fund the vaccines to put kids in school, shots in arms, money in people's pockets, people in jobs, that we are in a different position now uh, than we were in the past. Really? Okay. So we got to get all that stuff for free to us to make sure, yeah, we got to really work on getting those under fives inoculated. No one's even given me a good story on why we should be giving toddlers vaccines, which they clearly can't handle the dosage. They're talking about three shots for one of them. So I got to give a kid three shots that's going to wear off in one year 
for a virus that the percentages says is not going to negatively affect them long term or most of them are going to be asymptomatic. So having said all that, you can't have it both ways. But these are the these are the knuckleheads we're dealing with. There should be certain issues where we disagree on. Controlling the border should be not there. Not seeing the hypocrisy by saying Title 42 must go, but we need all free medicine, long-term care, and the COVID constrictions, and masks on and planes. You don't see the hypocrisy in that? I have no use for you. You're wasting my time. When you come back, I'll open up the phones and get your email, briankillme.com, 1-866-408-7669. So glad you're here. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Uh, there you go. That was Elon Musk talking about the possibility of buying uh, Twitter. He has since bought Twitter. Forty-six, uh, $44 billion. He secures the financing, uh, took out some, uh, even though he's the richest guy in the world, I guess he didn't have a lot of cash on hand or enough to buy it. So he did, he did some deals with some banks, and he's got Twitter. Bottom line is he's taken off the edge. He's going to take it private. What will that mean? Well, a guy now who's CEO of of Donald Trump's social media uh, arm, that is Truth Social, is Devin Nunes, the former congressman from California. Congressman, twice in an hour. Great to talk to you. Uh, Brian, thanks for having me, man. This is uh, this is great, man. You, you They're working you too hard. they got to pay you more. I know. We've got to work on that payment. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll tweet about that or use, well, what do I call it on Truth Social when you post something? You have to truth. You have to truth. Truths are better, much better than tweets. Or Instagram posts. So does Twitter going to somebody like Elon Musk hurt you guys at Truth Social? Because do he's looked at someone's more of a fair and balanced guy? No, I mean, actually quite the opposite. And you notice that, uh, you know, obviously we now are number one in the app store. And it's clearly because people's eyes have been opened. And they know that all of these other sites where the people are on, um, you know, and, and still, look, Twitter's got a long way to go, but Twitter was a ghost town. There was, there was nobody there, as I was saying on Fox and Prince this morning. The, the, the eyeballs are on users are on TikTok, which is China-owned, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, and, of course, Facebook. So those, uh, they have real users, and they have a lot of users, and, you know, that's where the market is. And so what we're developing at Truth is a community that's going to not only – uh, leverage the best of what Twitter has, but also the best of Instagram and ultimately the best of Facebook so that we can go out and, and grab those users. You know, it's a totally different user base. Uh, there's a lot of people out there uh, for us to get. So we're, so we have, Brian, it's important for people to know how we got here. So Donald Trump was kicked off of every platform. 
millions of Americans were either kicked off the platform, shadow banned like me, censored uh, you know, like, like no other. So Donald Trump had no choice but to create his own platform. He had nowhere to go. And uh, we, you know, we've built this thing just in a matter of a few months. And I think people need to understand that we just opened up in the Apple App Store fully on Saturday. So this is like day, I don't know, three and a half. You know, we're on, we're on day four here. So it's, it's amazing the growth that we're seeing. And yesterday was a big day for us because, you know, imagine all millions of Americans who have been kicked off, censored off of all these platforms. So for Elon Musk to come in and buy Twitter, we're all for it. I mean, we're glad that somebody's finally stepping up and, and saying the things that he's saying, and hopefully he can make it better. I mean, it, it's not a profitable company. And uh, it's lost a lot of users. But look, you know, having that out of the control of, of woke lunatics is, pro- is, a, is a good thing. And let's just see if he can stick to his promises, which is to, you know, get rid of the algorithms and get rid of the, the censoring. And if he, if he can, uh, it'll be a good thing because Twitter really is it, – Twitter is much different than Truth Social or Instagram or Facebook. Twitter is really a – a global PR wire on the internet. It's a place that corporations go, sports teams go, political hacks go, and Hollywood celebrities go to put out press releases. And, and you know, so it's got a global footprint. So to have that uh, out, out, out of the control of, of, of Wokies is, is a good thing. But it's going to be interesting to see if he can make it work. So you, the president put this out yesterday. I hope Elon buys Twitter, which, of course, he did. But he'll make improvements to it, and he's a good man. But I am, uh, I am going to uh, stay on truth. Um, and as you know, he wants uh, Twitter to be more inclusive. So when it comes to Truth Social, if some of these MSNBC fans and CNN fans get on and, and start trolling the president, or you, Devin, uh, how are you guys going to react? Is that allowed? Yeah, well, we already have we are actually already have a lot of uh, what appears to be uh, far left people that that are on there, uh, and and doing you know just that. Now, now one of the things that that we are doing, and I was I was I was harassing uh, Ducey this morning on on television on Fox and Friends with you, but you know we're we're, we're not allowing bots or fake people. So if you're going to be on there, you know you know we're going to know we're going to have you verified, and you know your your number, your email, you know we're not going to tolerate you know any you know, any fake people or anybody having, you know, 5,000 accounts, you know, like, like they do on Twitter, you know, you've got to have a real account and actually be a, a real, a real human running the account. Um, and that's, you know, that's not easy to do. And then of course we, we're not going to tolerate any illegal activity. So, you know, what I like to say is we want to be a family friendly place. A lot of the stuff that you see uh, on these tech tyrant platforms, you know, it's a lot of stuff that uh, quite frankly, you know, I don't want my daughter seeing, I don't want my, you know, my mom's seen, and you know we're we're trying to keep it a clean, family-friendly place. So you know we do have we do have rules, but let me right. tell you what we don't have rules for. We are not going to censor you for your political views, and that's the main thing. People have a right in in this country and around the globe, First Amendment right, to get out there and say, I believe in vaccines, or I don't believe in vaccines, or. I think the Hunter Biden laptop from hell is real. I don't believe it's it's Russian disinformation. That's what we want to foster, a family-friendly, clean place. Anybody can come on there, but 
Not if you're a bot. Not not like Ducey, man. We thought he was a bot. We had to we had to keep him off for a while. It looks like you we did. got him on though. We got him on. Kill me. We got him on. Right. Well, let me ask you. How do you truth? Because I'm on right now. Uh, I yep. hit. So where do I hit the now? Little red, the little red. The little red circle in the corner. Boom. Hit it and type in and 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 blast away, man. It'll go out to go out to the world. Mm, I don't see it. Wait. Oh, there you go. Okay, got it. So there's a little red circle. You do what you said. Truth. Is there a limit to characters? Uh, yeah, but it's it's a lot. It's a lot more than Twitter and some of the other platforms. It's, I think it's uh, like like over 400. Do you believe that? So you could, you, do you believe that this is necessary if the president is going to be running for president again? Do you believe you have to have a social media presence? Is that part of the reason why he lured you over and went ahead and did this project? No, actually, you know, it, it was really just the op- it was kind of the opposite. I mean, the president's I think been very clear about his future plans. You know, he wants to win, makes you know, help the Republicans win the midterms. But what what he wanted and what I wanted because I had been on this this issue for for a few years. I had actually quit tweeting uh, you know, over two years ago because of the censorship. And what he what he wanted is he wanted the American people to get their voice back. And he wanted to open the internet back up. So this is a this is a big picture. He didn't need to start a new company. He did it for the American people and and people around the world to have a free and open internet. And that's why you know I like I joke. I mean, he didn't need a new company, and I didn't need a job. I was you know had leadership position in the House of Representatives. I loved representing the people of the San Joaquin Valley of California, but I felt this was the most important issue at the highest level. You know, we are in a propaganda war in this country. There's disinformation flowing from extreme left being force fed into the American public and around the globe. And and I just saw the decorum and everything just collapse in Washington over over my time there. And I knew if we didn't have basic communications for people to communicate freely, this country was going to go into a tailspin. And that's why True Social is 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 number one on the app store right now, because people are on there. It's, they're they're engaged. And, and it's growing. And, that, and, you know, we're glad that somebody like Elon Musk stepped up and, you know, spent 40 some billion dollars to at least wrestle this away from from lunatics, the, the, the Twitter PR system. I mean, we we are we are excited. I mean, this is something that's needed to happen for a long time. So I think yesterday was a big day of kind of breaking through the first door. It's opening people's eyes. And and we see that now because just the reaction of people that are joining truth. And I, and I don't want to, you know, of course, Brian, I'm the CEO of, of the company, um, but, you know, we're doing this to give people their voice back. And, and you should know this, too. We're only we just got out of beta testing. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, we're only open right now in the United States. So imagine that, you know, Elon Musk is one of the most popular guys in the world. He just bought he just bought Twitter yesterday. Mm-hmm. They're below us. And they're open all over the globe. We're only open in the United States, and, I, and the, the American people are reacting, and they're signing up, and they're enjoying their, their time on the platform because they're finding people that, that they haven't seen on social media for, for several years because they got kicked off or censored, and, and they're enjoying it. And that's why the engagement is so high on our platform, even though we've, you know, we've barely just begun. I, I want you to hear what Jen Psaki said yesterday about this sale and what it means. Cut three. 
No matter who owns or runs uh, Twitter, uh, the president has long been concerned about the power of large social media platforms, uh, what they ha the power they have over our everyday lives, has long argued that tech platforms must be held accountable for the harms they cause. Uh, he's been a strong supporter of fundamental reforms to achieve that goal. So uh, he's concerned about it. He would feel as though in many ways he benefited from it. So, Devin, who moderates yours? For example, let's say someone pops up there and tweets out, Joe Biden wants to start World War III. I don't know if that's accurate. Probably not. Wants to start World War III. And it's the other way. But does Devin Nunes on Truth Social say, okay, I'm taking that down. It's dangerous? Yeah, well, well, we have guidelines. And let me so let me come back to let me come back to that. Just but let me decipher what she's talking about yeah. there, because it, I think it's, it's really an important point. The, these tech tyrants were completely in bed with the left wing in this country since Donald Trump won in 2016. The censoring started in 17 and ramped up in 18 and 19 and 20. And it culminated in 20 before the election by hiding the Hunter Biden laptop story in its entirety, changing the, the election result. We know that now from, from polling. And then ultimately, you know, hundreds of thousands, not millions of people got kicked off of these platforms after the election. And I'm not talking about President Trump. I'm talking about millions of Americans got whacked by these by these guys. So so that's what she's saying. Remember, Zuckerberg spent this is another issue, nearly half a billion dollars that went to harvest votes around this country. And it went to the most of that money went to the strongest Democratic precincts in this country. And it just so happened to be in the 10 swing states. So they are completely in bed. What it is is it's, okay, we want to try to stop the, the sale to Elon Musk. And, oh, by the way, let me send a message to you, Facebook and other guys. You better keep giving us money or we're going to come in and try to regulate it. it, it it's a threat is what it is, Brian. It's a, it's a threat. They've been in bed together, and, and that's why you know, I just want to make sure I decipher that. But as it relates to what people can post on the platform you know, it's, it, it always comes down to obviously no illegal activity. And I guess the difference, sometimes it becomes a judgment call. If somebody is on there, you know, constantly, so we have spamming rules. If somebody's just on there, Brian, if they call you a bad name one time or, or, or maybe, maybe even a few times, you know, that's fine. You know, but, you know, because you know, sometimes heat of the action, you know, somebody gets upset. You know, we, we, we all do that sometimes. But if they're just going around to every, sing, you know, every single account and just harassing users that they don't even know, calling them names, that's where you just get over to spam. And, you know, that's, we're not going to tolerate that. But, you know, there's, we'll give warnings and there'll be limits. But, but at the end of the day, you know, I think if you're just on there being a normal person, you know, we're going to allow, you know, most things to fly. Jack um, Dorsey. It just, it just depends if you, to go a, ahead. Sorry. Jack Dorsey tweeted this out. Uh, and I can't make heads or tails of it. Elon's goal of creating a platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is the right one. This is also the current CEO's goal, why I chose him. Thank you both for getting the company out of an impossible situation. This is the right path. I believe it will uh, – I, I believe it with all my heart. Uh, I have – there's – to me, that's one of the most complex uh, statements ever because he, he runs Twitter. What didn't he like about it? Who would, I mean, what, what, was, what does Elon Musk do better than he didn't do? Why was his intent, why is Elon Musk's intent better than his? You know, it's, it's that, that whole, it's just strange, right? Because the guy clearly, you know, had control. Maybe he lost control. But, you know, let's not kid ourselves. 
I mean, that, uh, you know, he is not some like even, he's not a moderate. The guy's a far left wing guy, and he was, you know, not only letting this stuff happen, but promoting it for many, many years. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe he uh, had an awakening, Brian. I don't know. Because you <laughs> questioned these guys on, on, at the House as a member of the House, right? Yeah, you know what? I, I didn't serve on those committees. But uh, but they were questioned about it. And, yeah, that's you know what? That's a good point, Brian. People ought to go back and look at what's happened uh, on those, you know, at those hearings, because those guys were questioning. They didn't you know, they were very evasive in those hearings, as I recall. Very interesting. Uh, uh, And lastly, Elizabeth Warren says the deal is dangerous for democracy. Billionaires like Elon Musk must play by a different set of rules than everyone else, accumulating power for their own gain. We need a wealth tax and strong rules to hold back big tech accountable. Well, that makes no sense. But yeah, it's it's another thread. It's just back to what the why they're all on the same message. It's it's we have the power. We're going to investigate you and harass you if you dare don't comply with us and do what we want. Because when they say they want to regulate, it means they, they'll, they'll regulate only if they don't do what they want in terms of censoring people that are in the center or center right. Got it. Uh, Truth Social, the name of the app, number one app store uh, in the app store. Number two is Twitter. Uh, a lot of things changing in social media out there. Uh, but right now the former president says, I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Truth Social. Devin Nunes, thanks so much. Hey, Brian, thanks again. Thanks for having me twice twice in a day, man. <laughs> you got it. Thanks. When we come back, I'll take your phone calls, 1-866-408-7669. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Twitter and Elon Musk have reached a deal for the billionaire to purchase the social media company and take it private. The board agreed to the deal this afternoon, accepting Musk's $44 billion deal. $44 billion. Imagine having so much money, you think it's a good idea to buy hell. (laughs) That is uh, James Corden, obviously, talking about it. He's one of the few people on the left not freaking out. Uh, that Twitter was bought by Elon Musk. I think he's, I mean, the guy's pretty f- phenomenal in terms of an impact player. He's got a tunnel called Boring, uh, a tunnel company. He's got SpaceX, obviously, going extreme, extremely well. He's got Tesla, which is going better, which is looking to secure more rare earth or to move it forward. And now he's got Twitter. And I don't think he's that concerned about Twitter turning a profit, but I sense it will. I think he's going to have a lot more interest, and what I think I think he's going to unmask. I wouldn't be surprised press conference style. A lot of the the, the shadow banning has been taking place. Got these guys got six months to get out. At which time, they might be leaving behind them a trail of what's been going on since 2016. I will say this, and maybe it's just pure people getting back on Twitter. I added 37,000 followers in 12 hours. That's unbelievable. I mean, 37,000. I lost about 120,000 after the 2020 election because they said they were going through it and they were gutting it or I'm not sure of that or January 6th or same thing. So I'm not sure if they got rid of a whole bunch of bots or they started restraining my site or my identity or my profile. But people are flooding over to Twitter right now, and I think it's only good for both sides. You have to agree. Hey, Go to BrianKilme.com, order any of my books. I'll make sure to sign, personalize, and send, especially for Mother's Day. President of Freedom Fighters, the latest. 
from the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour is going to be great. We got uh, Jim Cott, the legendary baseball pitcher, brand new book out, uh, also a great broadcaster. Simulcast on FBN, the fastest growing cable news channel in the country. And Richard Haas is uh, standing by, uh, the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, as we see the just pretty dramatic uh, events unfolding as our Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense goes to Kiev, then uh, convenes kind of uh, quickly a conference in Germany and says, who, who can show up? What nations can show up? This way we could see what weapons we have that we might be able to get to Ukraine. They just told me what they needed most. And then we find out that uh, Russia has responded to this bulk up and aggressive uh, uh, arming of Ukraine from NATO. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This has been the Russian playbook since uh, since even when the invasion was brand new, that this was really the West against Russia and NATO against Russia and the United States against Russia. And that's just not the case. Uh, this is about Russia's unprovoked war inside Ukraine. Russia has achieved none of its strategic objectives. Uh, that is John Kirby on Fox and Friends about an hour ago with me. Allies rallying in Germany for Ukraine. 40 nations map out how they could do more, as Russia claims. Uh, this is a proxy war for them versus NATO. And also it's estimated that Russia has already lost 15,000 men. Number two. If Title 42 is removed, according to the Biden administration, it would mean 18,000 people a day coming across the border, which would in turn annually mean there would be more than 6 million people coming across the border. That's two times the size of the city of Houston. Uh, that is out of control. Don't you agree? Biden's quest to thoroughly dismantle the border gets derailed for now as a judge stays in order on Title 42. Kevin McCarthy leads a Republican delegation to see for himself and does not like the chaos. Number one. You know, there's that account, Defiant L's, Business Insider. They had a tweet that said, you know, how great it was that Jeff Bezos was buying the Washington Post. You know, now they had a tweet that said this is the end of civilization because Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Instagram or, or the Facebook of Zuckerberg, I feel like they censor 10x what Twitter does. Right. Uh, Musk takes Twitter as $46 billion to finance this massive takeover. Has the Silicon Valley and many Democrats panicking. Not sure why. It's also fascinating that the founder, Jack Dorsey, Dorsey applauds the takeover. Interesting. But let's put that on hold for a second to bring in uh, Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Richard Haas, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Brian, for having me. Hey, uh, first off, is it me or is there a much more aggressive tone coming out of the White House uh, on this war as of late? Uh, I don't think it's you. I think you're hearing what what is being said. And you see not just the tone, which is more aggressive, as you say, talking about uh, weakening Russia and so forth. But the substance of the policy, it's the volume and it's the quality, it's the nature of the weaponry that's going to Ukraine, the political identification of American interests with Ukraine's interests, having you know, cabinet members show up there and the rest. So, yes, uh, I think you're, you're reading it accurately. So do you think it's a good move uh, because we are very responsive to their needs? We're flooding the area with weapons. Uh, the, the detractors, the, the people that worry about this, says we are, we're fostering something that could get out of control. I think I guess I have two reactions. One is I'm glad we're providing uh, Ukraine with the kind of weaponry they're going to need for this next phase of the war. 
We're obviously now got a, you know, a situation where Russia is going to concentrate troops in the, in the east and the south. It's almost if you imagine a, a clock, say, from two to five on the clock, you're seeing a massing of, uh, of Russian troops. And we're giving Ukraine the not just the, the arms and ammunition, but they've had the training, the intelligence to, to compete. And it gives them a much more of an offensive capability, not simply anti-tank weapons and the like, but also some aggressive uh, tanks and conceivably aircraft of their their own. So this is going to be a large set-piece uh, battle. I think that's good. I worry about rhetoric that talks about that our goal is to weaken Russia. Don't get me wrong here. I think the weakening of Russia is a good thing uh, strategically. Putin launched this war, and the fact that Russia will come out of it weaker is a is a good thing. But to talk about it publicly it seems to me uh, makes him much more likely to think about escalating. It makes it a fight to the, the, the finish. It will unnerve our allies in Europe. That's not what they signed on for. They signed on for uh, the defense of Ukraine, not for an all-out war against Russia. And by the way, it would be nice at some point if someone would just talk about what our definition of success is in Ukraine. Is it to get back to the borders that existed two months ago? Is it to get back to the borders that existed eight years ago? Is it to get a ceasefire in place? We have always wanted one singular objective, Brian, and that is that uh, Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity is fully respected by Russia and, quite frankly, everybody else. And that's what the meeting in Germany here is all about. So many countries from outside Europe uh, participating and looking at ways that they can contribute to Ukraine's ability to defend itself now and well into the future. That's been the goal from, from day one, and that has not changed. So that's what I asked in the question, what you just asked in your concern about Secretary of Defense uh, you know, uh, Austin um, coming out and saying that, that we want to weaken Russia so they can't do this again. So that's one thing that I, I saw that uh, Ian Bremmer was worried about. He says inside Russia, this is they're making it NATO versus Russia. And that's that would get right. rally their population in a way that right. they probably would be unnecessary, you know, unnecessarily. A couple of things. One is this has been a war of Russia against Ukraine, a war of choice by Putin. I do not want to turn this into a war of Russia against NATO or the West. Uh, it allows Putin to, to rally uh, around that. But John Kirby's statement you just played, deconstruct that. It's one thing to talk about Ukraine sovereignty. I get it. But is he saying that it is the policy of the United States that we support Ukraine militarily reclaiming every inch of its territory? Does that mean that it is, it is now U.S. policy that Ukraine shall militarily do everything in its capability, and we will ensure they will succeed to take back Crimea, to take back every square inch of the Donbass? Unless I missed it, that's a big, big policy move, and we haven't had that conversation. We haven't. Uh, I guess it's see where it, where we let, uh, where it goes. Uh, Richard, are you somebody that's uh, that's a little surprised that the Russians aren't better? They aren't better equipped. I mean, the reason why they are just leveling cities is is be, it's a lack of skill. Not only is it in barbaric intent, but it's also a lack of skill. Don't you think? I do, and I am somewhat surprised. Like a lot of people, including Vladimir Putin, I'd say, uh, I overestimated the quality of uh, the Russian uh, military. And you're right. So far, at least, they've largely not fought a war. Certainly not successfully against the Ukrainian military. They fought a war against undefended cities and, and civilians. They've got real cultural problems. 
uh, real real command problems. Uh, a lot of conscripts have not been well trained, didn't weren't weren't um, motivated. So yeah, I think what this exposes again is that Russia is much weaker than we thought. That's the good news. It seems to me if they were to take on NATO directly, they would get hammered. So yes, uh, the only bad part of this, Brian is Russian conventional inadequacy, which is what we're seeing militarily, that very quickly could lead to a decision point for Putin where he might say, we're either going to lose or escalate to chemical or nuclear weapons. And that's the one thing that leaves me uneasy about a a lot of scenarios. So that's what Lavrov basically said in an hour-long conversation a few hours ago. It's hard with the time difference to know if it was yesterday morning or night, but uh, he says NATO, in essence, is entering a proxy war with Russia and warned the Western nation there was a considerable risk of nuclear war. This is like the fifth time they've said that since this conflict began on their choice. So that's what you worry about, right? Look, I do worry about it. Ironically enough, it was NATO policy to be the first to introduce nuclear weapons if needed be in order to compensate for what we thought was our conventional military inferiority during the Cold War. Now the shoe is on the other foot. And what scares me about Russia, about this Russia, Putin's Russia, is I don't see the constraints. If Vladimir Putin wants to use chemical or nuclear weapons, who there is going to say you can't? Who's going to prevent them? Think about it. At the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, there was more restraint on Nikita Khrushchev than there is on Vladimir Putin today. And that ought to give us some that ought to give us pause. You mean the Politburo was a real parliament? Well, it wasn't a problem, but the Politburo had institutionalization. There was a degree of constraint. There was a degree of uh, collective decision-making. Putin has essentially deinstitutionalized Russian government. This kleptocracy he's created. You've got a small number of people who are financially and politically dependent on him. And again, if he wanted to shoot off a nuclear weapon or two, I'm not sure who would have the ability or the uh, willingness to, to stop him. So the Ger- Germany, as you talk about the transformation, uh, Germany has, will, will send Ukraine dozens of radar-equipped heavy tanks designed for air defense. The first time it has supplied Ukraine with heavy weapons in the war. They also have put aside $112 billion on military procurements that, were more that, that would get them above 2% of their GDP, which they should have been doing all along. We're seeing this story over and over again. We do not have them getting off Russian oil. That would be more substantial and gas. But they can't do it overnight anyway. It's supplying their war machine. But if I was to tell you this two years ago, that Germany would be, have this type of change of heart, you'd say, you're, Brian, you're crazy, right? Uh, yeah, I would have said that at least. No, the, the turnaround in Germany, while not complete, has been ex- extraordinary. As you say, uh, doubling the defense spending, providing all sorts of uh, – of arms supporting sanctions up to point. The biggest problem is their non-support for the, the, the gas cutoff. Uh, they could do it, but only at significant cost to their economy. We'll see how the debate plays plays out in uh, Germany. And my only mild warning here, and there was an interesting uh, tweet today from the former German uh, ambassador to the United States, Wolfgang Ischinger, uh, that they are concerned about what they see as the ratcheting up of U.S. war aims. They haven't signed on to a war to, quote, unquote, weaken or bleed Russia. They have signed out up for war to, to help Ukraine. And I think we just have to be careful 
not to undermine this rather remarkable turnaround in Germany and this rather remarkable NATO solidarity. I want to move around the world a little bit. Somehow we were rationalizing having Russia take the lead in negotiating with Iran about their nuclear program. They're going to take the enriched uranium out of their country and we're going to pay them to do it while we sit in the adjacent room. I mean, is there any sober minds there that could snap out of it and understand this is in no one's interest? Look, I think the bigger problem is that we're we're negotiating this agreement with Iran. I do not understand why we would sign on to an agreement with such short durations that wouldn't cover missiles, wouldn't cover all of Iran's destabilizing activities around the region and and, the world. Uh, And we transform resources that would help them do this all for a few more years of uh, limited restraint on the nuclear side. I just think it's a questionable deal. It is. And are you somebody that understands right now the gravity of things in the region and understands the best, worst option is Saudi Arabia. I watched Fajrid Sakaria say that over the weekend. He said that Khashoggi was a friend of his. And when you look around in the region and the countries, the Sunni countries that were signing deals on the Abraham Accords with Israel has kind of stopped, and Saudi Arabia has basically cut off relations with the U.S., not increasing oil production, not taking phone calls, told Jake Sullivan, don't even bring up the Khashoggi situation again. And knowing that Iran is the other option, that going back and reestablishing relations is in our best interest? Look, I think we've got this wrong. I, I was unhappy as anyone and still am about the Khashoggi assassination or murder On the other hand, I don't think we can have the entire relationship with Saudi Arabia held hostage to that. I think we've got to find a way to not ignore it, not to forget it, uh, but to work to some extent, work around it. We've got other other concerns, obviously, Iran. Obviously, we'd like to see Saudi Arabia normalize with with uh, Israel. So, yeah, I do think we need a bigger relationship with Saudi Arabia. And I think you're right. The Saudis have given up on this administration. I actually think the financial deal they recently reached with Jared Kishner is in some way a message that they are betting or taking out an insurance policy or whatever you want to call it, an option, that in three years you'd have a a Republican administration. And they they essentially said, we're going to cool our heels until then. We're not going to work with the United States. Well, by the way, we're not going to put out more oil to keep prices down during the Ukraine crisis, and we're just going to wait until there's a Republican administration and see if we can't do business with the Americans again. And I think I think that's unfortunate. And the thing is, Richard, they, we're not the only option. Uh, China is an option to a degree, right? They can they can to a degree. Yeah, I mean, and Russia is an option, so they could always play that against us. And what people should understand too, when we decide that the Houthi rebels belong off the terror watch list. That's going to tick off Saudi Arabia. Houthi rebels are supported by Iran. So you might not like the way uh, Saudi Arabia is acting, but they are reacting to missiles that are striking their country, right? Not just them, also the United Arab Emirates. I think we have turned a blind eye to some of what Iran is doing in, in Yemen and what the IRGC is doing with groups like the Houthis, and that has alienated both the, the UAE, for example, who wouldn't support us, on, on the policy towards Russia uh, in this crisis. Uh, you know, we may not want, want to see the connections. We may not want to see the linkages, but other countries do. And we can't just essentially knock on their door when we want something from them. We have got to have real relationships, and I don't think we're doing it with, with, the, with the Saudis in particular. You must find this time fascinating, right? It is really interesting. Uh, though I used to say when I was in government 
that one of my goals in life was to make, among other things, uh, the Middle East less interesting. I wanted it to become boring, and I clearly failed dismally. <laughs> uh, but you always have insight. Uh, Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council of Foreign Relations, thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 I'll take your calls in a moment. Then Jim Cott at the bottom of the hour. Talk a little baseball. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If Title 42 is removed, according to the Biden administration, it would mean 18,000 people a day come across the border, which would in turn annually mean there would be more than 6 million people coming across the border. That's two times the size of the city of Houston. Uh, And that's how out of control uh, it is uh, with the uh, immigration situation. And then you have a... National Guardsman who goes into the water, who fresh off Kuwait and Iraq, he goes and serves. And a lot of this duty, they hate it because they're in the middle of nowhere, away from their families, out of their job. And they're serving there because the federal government will not secure the border. Well, this guy jumps in and he ends up drowning. They pull his body out yesterday. And the Jen Psaki basically is a little indifferent. Really, it's not it's not our issues. You know, we it's bad, but uh, that's because Texas decided to put them on the border. Well, the big picture is they're on the border for one reason, not for exercise, not for training. It's because it's totally out of control. And that and that's the issue that I can't believe over the weekend, Jen Psaki's communication division wouldn't put out something uh, about, you know, our hearts go out to this guy whose family um, was obviously distressed because the person he uh, was able to fish out and survive or one of the two survived. Drug mule, bringing drugs into the country. So now we're going to see what's going to happen. They say two out of every 10 Democrats care about uh, immigration, seven out of every 10 Republicans. So somewhere in the middle, you have independents and undecideds. And that's why they're leaving this administration. Please point me to an area outside low unemployment numbers, which was happening anywhere we're kind of used to, when finding people to get employed is really the bigger issue where this administration is hitting stride, where their policies are actually working. They think they have a good story to tell. Okay, I'm all ears. When we come back, we talk to Jim Cott. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade. that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. On the mound, left-handed Jim Cott with a record of 18 and 11. He led the league in those 42 stars, equaled his top previous win total, and enjoyed his best percentage of the year. A line drag to Cott. Lefty Jim Cott looks down and the ball was there. And the Twins have made it two in a row. Uh, There you go. That is just some of the highlights of Jim Cott's uh, decades in Major League Baseball. He spent eight decades, if you consider his years in in broadcasting as well. Uh, He has got a a brand new book out. And by the way, that was Jim Cott completing uh, a complete game win, uh, beating uh, Sandy Koufax. So 
Uh, that is a little bit about what Jim Cott's about. Hall of Fame Major League pitcher, author of Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. Jim, welcome to Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, thank you so much. It was uh, pretty exciting to hear uh, Ray Scott uh, mention that uh, that last out in Game 2 of the 65 series. How often do you look, look back at any moments in your career? I mean, it's, it was such a, a long one. You were Tom Brady before Tom Brady. You were pitching a 44. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I actually went to camp at 45, but you know, it's it's times like this ever since the Hall of Fame announcement that uh, you know the, the magnitude of it is just uh, overwhelming. And I've in the past, I've never really, you know, I I can't say I look back on those. Obviously, when I hear that, I, I remember it in great detail. But uh, uh, you know, once I got into announcing, uh, you know, I kind of forgot about my. Uh, playing days, unless, you know, I'm reminded of it with something like that. And that's always fun. Golden Days uh, era committee have put you in the class of 2022 and people are rediscovering uh, your career. And they say you you played with 13 Hall of Famers. Your first year, was was it 1959, your first year? 1959, I got uh, called up. Uh, Yeah, Harmon Killebrew would have been the Hall of Famer that was on that team. Yeah, I played... Yeah, I guess that's right. I played with 13. I was adding up the other day. I think if you include the all-star game where I faced like uh, Clemente and Aaron and uh, uh, Mays, then uh, I think I've touched base in games with probably about 30 of them. You touch base. Did you, do you feel as though that era, when you talk about Mays and Aaron and Roberto Clemente and Orlando Cepeda and others, do you feel as though players were better back then? No, I don't think they were better. I think the players today, ability-wise, uh, are the best ever. But the way the game has been operated and what's caused them to play it the way they do, turning it into basically a home run derby and a power pitching exhibition where you know you can only throw so many pitches at full power and you have to come out of the game. So I don't think the game is as appealing. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the era I played in. If I had a choice, uh, even though I've been reminded many times, well, think of the money you'd be making today. I said I really would have enjoyed uh, another era would have been from 1946 to 1958, right after World War II. I just think the game of baseball, you know, people didn't look at their cell phones and while they're at the stadium and occasionally look up and see what the score is. They were really into the game. Uh, 283 wins, 180 complete games. Managers don't even want players to complete games. We had a pitcher come out. The Dodgers uh, pulled their pitch with a perfect game the other day because it was so early in the season. Can you even get your head around that? (laughs) Well, actually, I I could get my head around it. You know, last night, Walker Bueller pitched the first complete game of any pitcher all season, and we're like three weeks into the season, but... You know, I understand it. They're they're not trained the way we were. And they look at a Clayton Kershaw who did that, and he's had a short spring training, and he's coming off uh, injury in the past. And they they think they're doing the right thing, but I'm just surprised that uh, people that know pitching better should know that, first of all, it's the condition of your legs. And I was so happy to read where Max Scherzer mentioned that in an interview a couple days ago that, in order to pitch deep in the games, you have to condition your legs. Well, if you get limited in how many pitches you're going to throw, you never get your legs conditioned to pitch nine innings if all they're doing is letting you pitch five. So it's counterproductive. And uh, it's sad, 
but I understand why they're doing it, and it's too bad because these pitchers are so talented. There's no reason why we couldn't see, for example, a Scherzer-Kershaw deal going uh, duel going into the ninth inning, and it just doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't. I remember Seaver was the first one I remember talking about that, and Nolan Ryan uh, as well. They thought the best way to pitch a long time was to pitch a long time. Uh, keep doing right. it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so, so you had 500 pro teammates, 13 of which were uh, Hall of Famers. Uh, you have 283 wins, 4,500 plus innings, and what I think is so amazing, and you also hit 16 homers. All the pitchers uh, were were hitting back then. What is so amazing is you're basically injury free. Looking back now, is that genetics? We didn't have the technology you think today uh, in terms of weight training and stretching and uh, plyometrics. Why do you think you were virtually injury-free? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I think a lot of it is genetics. Uh, I mean, Scherzer mentioned this, too. I was I was born with a—I had a pretty durable body, uh, a very durable body. But I think in my early days, growing up in uh, southwestern Michigan and Zealand, cold-weather climate in the winter, we played a limited number of games. Uh, we played all sports, you know, football, basketball. Some guys ran track, and then baseball was just one of many. So we never pitched uh, uh, so many innings that it put stress on our arm, and uh, we had never heard of the radar gun or pitch counts. So, you know, you just pitched and played sandlot ball, and your body developed. And and then, you know, my first organized baseball was until I was 16. And uh, then I'd say 18 or 19, your body kind of matures. You see all the kids today are playing travel ball. And, and Dr. Andrews, who did the Tommy John surgery for years, uh, Dr. Andrews and Dr. Job, they've always recommended that young uh, people play all sports to develop all the muscles in your entire body. And uh, it's that stress on young pitchers, players, trying to do too much too soon before their bodies are, are used to it, and then they break down. Couple of things. I want to uh, relive this moment for you. Uh, October twentieth, nineteen eighty-two, the Cardinals win the World Series, and you pitched in each of the first four games. Cut forty-four. Sooner from the belt to the plate, a swing and a miss, and that's the winner. That's the winner. A World Series winner for the Cardinals. Porter throws his mask into the air. The players converge around the mound. The police arrive on the scene. The canine patrol and the mounted patrol. Some fans manage to get on the field. The Cardinals have won the game 6-3. to three. Jack Buck on the call, right? Bruce Souter, maybe the greatest closer uh, ever. And it was one of the highest rated World Series ever, too, correct? I, I'm not sure about that, but you could play that highlight over and over for me. I'd never get tired of it. You know, uh, even though I played for a long time, I've been involved in the game a long time. When people ask me my top thrill, uh, you just heard it in that call uh, because it was my 24th and final full season, and no player has played longer professionally in any professional sport before getting a World Series ring, a championship ring. And so that's what that <laughs> meant to me when – when Bruce Souter threw strike three past Gorman Thomas. And uh, that was just an unbelievable night. And uh, uh, 40 years this year, they're having a reunion for us. So 
we'll get to get together again, a lot of the teammates from that team, and it'll be a great time. Right, and you'll probably still be in the best shape of anybody. Uh, Jim Cott, my <laughs> guest, is, his book is now uh, out. It's called Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. So you be, you won semi, seven Emmy Awards as a broadcaster, too. Here's one of the calls. You're part of this broadcast. Dwight Gooden, who had such an up-and-down career at 19, looked like he was going to be the best ever, series of drug problems. We know all about it. Ends up with the Yankees. who's able to uh, cash in on some fortune and what was left uh, in his arsenal. By the way, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. It was May 14, 1996, cut 46. <laughs> what do you recall about that, Jim? Oh, that was a great night. You know, the the big moment then was when uh, Alex Rodriguez, who was with Seattle, uh, hit a fly ball out to, to center field. And uh, now, sad to say, the late Gerald Williams made an unbelievable catch to uh, keep that no-hitter intact early in the game. But uh, I certainly remember that vividly, and I was fortunate to, to be a part of the broadcast for David Wells' perfect game a little bit later. And, you know, when Tony Kubek um, recommended that uh, MSG Network hire me after he retired, uh, I thank Tony often for that because getting that job and following that team for the next 12 years was the best local TV job uh, in the world because the Yankees were so good. Yeah. And every night at Yankee Stadium, you're apt to see something you've never seen before. And, uh, boy, that was, a, that was a fun but really an easy job following that team. Uh, Jim, I'm not only one of the great pitchers, but I hear one of the great guys of all time, Jim Cott. Pick up his book, Good as Gold. Thanks, Jim. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Barney and Company with Stuart Barney. Don't just hang in there on your investments. Call Talon Wealth and get peace of mind with active management of your portfolio. Dial 833-777-7887. Investment advisory services offered through Talon Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Uh, welcome. Uh, in a matter of moments, going to be with Honor Varney and Company on FBN, one of the top-rated shows in all business television, if not the. And we'll be talking about what's happening in the world of news as it melds with what's happening in the world of social media. Uh, but Stuart Varney, uh, of course, uh, I'm able to join him once a week, and let's listen in together. Progress. Brian Kilmeade, you're on. It's 10:51. Look, uh, here's what I want to start. Companies that loudly supported Black Lives Matter are now silent. Should companies even be jumping into politics, leftist politics, in the first place, Brian? Well, I mean, when you talk about Black Lives Matter in particular, I was just jotting some of these numbers down. It looks like Nike gave $140 million. It looks like Apple gave $100 million. It looks like Target gave $10 million. These what? Are just Yeah, these all two Black Lives Matter. Hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars? $140 million Nike. So and they put they take the Jordan brand Converse and Nike together and that's what they put in. They put Black Lives Matter on the side of the NBA courts. Why is the NBA not upset? Because this money is not accountable. The CEO is not there. They retired, disappeared, buying mansions. 
And there are a lot of these causes. There's a lot, there's a lot of people. For example, give credit to Michael Bloomberg. He knows a lot of minorities like charter schools. Uh, because they benefit from yes. them. They demand more from them. The, yes. the curriculum's also better. They're running out of financing. They're being starved by the federal government. He wrote a check for $200 million and said, here, take it to the schools, give it to the teachers, don't go anywhere else, get more kids, build more buildings. When you come to helping out uh, African Americans in America, everybody's heart maybe is in the right place. Maybe they feel they're hostage to it. I'm not sure. But in 2020, you see the results since Black Lives Matter came out, since the George Floyd uh, murder, which took place, there's this, there's this narrative that cops are bad, and there's a narrative that white America is bad. So there's an overcompensation, I guess, by, by writing big checks to feel better or to, to subscribe to this cause. We know the cops aren't bad. We know the ramifications yeah. are. And, and FoxNews.com came up with these numbers and figured it out. Murders have gone up over 40 percent since yeah. Black Lives Matter, since the George Floyd uh, killing in 2020. I wonder if Nike will get any of its money back. Should they ask for it? Should uh, they have to make sure they yes. be accountable for it? Of course. It? Don't of they course. have public shareholders? Of so course. Shouldn't they be outraged and say... Somebody oh, should stand up at the annual shareholders meeting and say, we want our money back. You gave it away. and We want it back. Anyway, before we go, I've got to move on to this one. Uh, we've got a new Fox Nation special coming out. comes out on Thursday. It's called Who is Elon Musk? I think I'm in it to some degree. I want your opinion, Brian. Is Elon Musk a genius or a huckster? Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it to me. A genius which, who's extremely bold and has great confidence in himself. Again, not the perfect home life. He didn't have the ideal situation at home. Divorced family. Leaves South Africa. Goes to Canada with hope of coming here. No one ever make, uh, cut, any, cut the brush away for Elon Musk or his brother. Uh, they found a way. He's clearly a genius and also is bold. He took great risks along the way. It looks like Tesla was not going to be the big success. SpaceX rockets were blowing up and there was taking t- tremendous loans out. He did have to figure out manufacturing on a mass level to a prototypical yeah. car that no one believed in. So he took great risk. I think in, I think you'll find at the end of this special, well, you make your own decision, but at the end of the special, you'd be led to believe we're a much better country because he came exactly. to our country. Yeah, exactly. It's a great thing. Uh, Brian, I'm going to be watching you on One Nation, Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, only on Fox News Channel. Thanks, Brian. We'll see you soon. Go get him. Uh, thanks Nation. so much, Stuart. one 408 uh, seven six six nine. So listen to this, and just building on what Black Lives Matter did. FBI data shows that seven thousand four hundred seven thousand forty three white people were murdered in twenty twenty, meaning two thousand eight hundred ninety eight uh, more black people were killed compared to whites. An average of six thousand nine hundred twenty seven black Americans were murdered each year between twenty ten and twenty nineteen. That went up forty three percent compared to the previous ten year average. A lot of people said it was to defund the police movement. I thoroughly believe that because police are often needed most in the most rundown, economically challenged neighborhoods. So when you tell them to go back and they're the problem, whether you're black or white as a cop, the fact that you wore the uniform, you're not there. That's led chaos reign supreme. And it's not happening necessarily in Beverly Hills. It's not happening uh, in the upper west side of New York City. You know, it's, it's happening. It's happening in Chicago. Uh, in the rundown areas of Chicago, gang members killing gang members, no infiltration. There's no anti-crime unit in New York City to find a way to weave into these neighborhoods and find out where the criminal activity is taking place, where the bad uh, guys are, where the bad actors are. And then ridding that neighborhood of it, because usually people 
who are in working class areas aspire to be middle class and middle class aspires to be upper middle and then and then upper class. That's just the American way. And you can't do that if you have to worry about your home being broken into, what little you have being taken and security being an issue. And what happens when police are taken out, they're hurt there. And I think these numbers don't lie. And I think that you've got to come out and examine the books on BLM, which blows me away is when it comes to Black Lives Matter, you see the money pouring in globally around the world. It really took root in trade with Trayvon Martin and the controversy around that. Uh, Black Lives Matter took uh, took off. Then if you said all lives matter, you get canceled. Remember that? So having said all that, you have this money that allows you to have a foundation but demands that you account for all of it. But getting an accountant is a necessary expense. The first thing you do if you're running an organization is get the most experienced uh, nonprofit leader out there. You could pay him a decent salary or her. Number two is you get the best accounting firm possible because you know the scrutiny is going to be on. Why would you put yourself in the line of fire? And then you go out and you have fundraiser element to it that goes out and says, these are the causes we want. This is the money we have. If you were able to donate to me, this is what we could do. And if you want to see my books, go check it out online on Charity Navigator. Instead, you have a series of CEOs resigning. Nobody wants to take the helm. And there's about six or seven mansions out there where people wonder, where'd you get the money for that? Bought, bought in mostly white neighborhoods, too. Tell me how that helps, helps the cause. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget for One Nation Saturday, uh, Saturday 8 o'clock, repeat it again at 11. Uh, and I'll go to BrianKilmeade.com. Get the President and Freedom Fighter. I'll sign it. We'll send it. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country and hopefully in Ukraine. Uh, we have uh, your phone calls, one 866 and two great uh, guests uh, teed up. Tyrus is out. You know Tyrus from all over the channel. He's got a brand new book out. It's his memoir. It's fascinating and it's, uh, excellent. You know why he's as smart he is. But you're not, you probably don't know what he's been through to get here. And uh, Gerard Baker just had to take the elevator to get here. Uh, he's got fresh off Bill and Martha show, editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal, which is a pretty good publication, and host of the Wall Street Journal at large Fridays at 730. Uh, Gerard, welcome. Thank you very much, Brian. As you say, it was a nice ride up in the elevator. It was great. Thank you for allowing us to come. Or you the for view, coming to our is, building. The view is spectacular. So let's Thank get you. to the big three. Yeah. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This has been the Russian playbook since uh, since even when the invasion was brand new, that this was really the West against Russia and NATO against Russia and the United States against Russia. And that's just not the case. Uh, this is about Russia's unprovoked war inside Ukraine. Russia has achieved none of its strategic objectives. John Kirby on Fox and Friends this morning. Allies rallying in Germany for Ukraine. 40, uh, 40 nations map out how they can help. And it's estimated Russia has already lost 15,000 men. Number two. If Title 42 is removed, according to the Biden administration, it would mean 18,000 people a day coming across the border, which would in turn annually mean there would be more than 6 million people coming across the border. That's two times the size of the city of Houston. 
Uh, no wonder he's incensed. Biden's quest to thoroughly dismantle the border gets derailed for now as the judge stays in order on Title 42. Kevin McCarthy leads a Republican delegation to Texas to see the chaos for himself. We'll discuss. Number one. You know, there's that account, Defiant L's, Business Insider. They had a tweet that said, you know, how great it was that Jeff Bezos was buying the Washington Post. You know, now they had a tweet that said this is the end of civilization because Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Instagram or, or the Facebook or Zuckerberg, I feel like they censor 10x what Twitter does. Uh, Dave Portnoy of Barstools, uh, of course, talking out, speaking out. Musk takes Twitter, $46, uh, $44 billion to finance the massive takeover uh, that has Silicon Valley and the left panicking. But should they? Let me pose that to you, uh, Gerard. Welcome. Thank you very much, Brian. So, uh, so Jerry, do you feel as though this uh, the Silicon Valley is really rocked to its core? Well, I have to say it's extremely enjoyable to watch the kind of meltdown uh, on sort of the left left Twitter, which, of course, is most of Twitter. Uh, and I particularly look forward to all these people saying it just reminds me, you know, all those people who said, you know, if Trump wins the election, I'm going to Canada. All these people who said, uh, you know, if Elon Musk gets this, I'm leaving Twitter and I'm taking my 17 followers with me. You know, yes. it's like, you know, how many, you know so I, I, I think I think he can survive that. Look, I think it's. I think it's progress without any doubt. There's absolutely no question that Twitter and all those big Silicon Valley companies discriminate routinely against um, against companies. And by the way, they do it in obvious ways, like famously blocking, you know, Twitter kicking President Trump off or blocking the New York Post from from its uh, Hunter Hunter Biden reporting. They do it in obvious ways like that, which is disgraceful. Did they ever block you guys when you did the Wall Street Journal editorial on the Hunter Biden laptop? No, they didn't. No, they, no, they didn't. It was interesting that we did, you know, we we did have some editorials on it. I, I can't remember if they put their, you know, their warning, their little warning on some of the tweets about it, but they didn't actually block us. But look, no, the other thing is, Brian, is that these companies do these things in much more sinister and surreptitious ways. You know, look, Google is the perfect example of that. If you search, search certain items on Google, you will get a set of results that is, you know, the, the top 10 results will be, will be very, very carefully curated to make sure that they dominate a, a particular view dominates. So you can try that with almost anything. I, you know, we do it all, I do it all the time. You know, you Google something like, um, you know, one, one thing I remember during the George Floyd, after the George Floyd uh, killing and the, and the riots that happened then, you know, you Google things like um, uh, black violent, black, black violence uh, against cops, and you get a set of results, which is all about black people being killed by cops. It, it just, it's, it goes, it, they do it all the time. So if Elon Musk can come in, committed, as he says, to free speech, he calls himself a free speech absolutist, can overturn that and can genuinely make, at least, at least make progress towards making Twitter a more genuinely free, open space for people to talk. That's good. Look, I have some doubts myself about, about Elon Musk. Elon Musk is himself, you know, quite thin-skinned about certain stuff. We, When I was editor of the Wall Street Journal, Brian, you know, we did stories about it. He didn't like it, and he was very hostile, and he used all kinds of ways to stop us from publishing our story. So he's, you know, he, he, he will publish stories. Uh, he like stories that, that, that favor him. But if we can take him at his word and hold him to it and see that he does actually publish, that he, that he does allow a, a much broader range of free speech um, and maybe change the algorithm in, a ways that, in, in ways that actually doesn't discriminate against um, you know, uh, uh, views that are not compatible with the overwhelming view of the, of the left on it, good, good news. Truth Social rolled out in a limited way, and then now they're uh, accepting everybody's invitation if you apply to get on. Here's what Devin Nunes, the CEO of Truth Social, uh, said about whether Donald Trump is going to go back on Cut 12. Donald Trump didn't need a new company. I had a perfectly good job working with my good friend Jim Jordan. I didn't need a new job. 
We did this for one reason and one reason only. We got censored. We got canceled. In some cases, people got completely kicked off of all the platforms, including the president of the United States. So we had nothing else to do but that was left to open the Internet back up and give the American people their voice back. So he did get kicked off. He, you probably need to social media to get reelected. Do you think this hurts Truth Social? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, look, I think one of the reasons Donald Trump has initially said he won't go back on Twitter is because he wants Truth Social to be the uh, to be to be the place where people come for his views. He doesn't understandably want to give his views. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the great ironies, as you know, Brian, of Twitter. And in fact, I once put this to Jack Dorsey. I said to him, you know, is is, is Donald Trump better for Twitter or is Twitter better for Donald Trump? And we know that it, that it was a grand, wonderfully symbiotic relationship, actually, because, you know, people Donald Trump had masses of followers, even before he was president, masses of followers on Twitter. Um, people would, would would you know, that would give him attention and it would give Twitter followers. And it was, a, again, a mutually beneficial relationship. Now that he's gone, there's no question that Twitter is not only a less balanced place because you don't have that voice and a lot of the people who are around him anymore. It's also a less interesting place, quite frankly, because of that. So I think, however, he wants Truth Social to work. Now, Truth Social is not, you know, is not so far has not been, you know, in its early days. It's the number um, one downloaded app today. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, um, we'll see. I mean, <clears throat> if, 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 um, if Twitter genuinely becomes a more open place where 80 percent of the views are not all of one particular progressive view, uh, then I think Twitter will 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 succeed. And I think Donald Trump will be tempted probably to go back on it, especially if he's going to run again for president. So tell me, you, you interviewed Jack Dorsey. You, what is his what was his answer to your question? He didn't answer it. I mean, okay. you know, I, I mean, so, but he knows. But he knew how beneficial Twitter uh, Donald Trump was for Twitter. So let me ask you, what does he mean by this? He put this out. Elon's goal of creating a platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is the right one. This is our goal right now and why I chose him, uh, the current CEO. Thank you uh, both for getting this company out of, an impos- uh, out of an impossible situation. This is the right path. I believe it will with, with all my heart. Is he mean because it's in the public square? It's now going to be a private company? Was he hostage to his own company and – this is, Agar- this is Agarwal, the, 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 current, the current CEO? No, this is oh, Jack, Jack Dorsey. Oh, it's Jack, right. Okay. So Jack Dorsey is for Elon Musk buying this, no. making a more equal playing field. You don't think he is? No, I don't think so. Look, you remember Jack was there when they blocked the Hunter Biden story. Jack was there when they, when they, took, uh, when they took Donald Trump off in the first place. So, I mean, uh, he, he, you know, he can't sort of distance himself from that decision. Now, I think he did say subsequently maybe, you know, if he had to do it again, they would think again. But that was a... You know that was an easy thing to say after the election, after after Joe Biden was president, and it didn't matter anymore. No, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that. I mean, I think that look again. Jack is not running the company anymore. He's not directly involved in the management, so he's got a lot more freedom to say things, I suppose, um, and to say things that sound better to a wider audience um, than he was able to say when he had a kind of direct responsibility for it. What's your take on Bezos tweeting out uh, the that um, they question the possibility that Chinese influence on Twitter? After, uh, because Tesla uh, uh, needs some of their rare earth from China. So now that Elon Musk is there, that China's going to have an influence on, on Twitter. You know, I think it's an interesting point. It does it does worry me a little bit. I mean, um, there's no question. Look, we should we, again. We shouldn't be starry eyed about Elon Musk. I mean, it is good. I think on on net, it's a good. You're thing. You're not impressed. I look on net. I think it's a good thing. It's better than the current situation. But again, we should know that Elon Musk is very thin skinned. He has strong commercial interests. He has. 
By the way, he has, he, he, you know, he's got he's got his own strong political views. They don't, te- you know, they're they're pretty libertarian on the whole, except when he wants government subsidies. Of course, then he's very happy to accept them. Um, look, I, and he does have a very big uh, business opportunity, business opportunity in China. So, you know, I mean, while he is going to be very happy to. It seems more allow more freedom of speech about what's going on in this country. It will be very interesting if uh, China leans on him, as they undoubtedly will do about his Tesla about his Tesla business. If they see stuff that they don't like on Twitter, I remember Twitter isn't available, isn't isn't seen in China, but they could still it could they could, they, they still have the ability to influence what what appears on Twitter in the rest of the world. So they ban Chinese. Can you believe, by the way, while we're on this, we're going to take a break and come back to about Ukraine. China's locked down 25 million people in Shanghai, and they're beginning to do the same thing in Beijing because of a handful of uh, small number of cases, most of which are asymptomatic. Yeah. I mean, what, what kind of reaction is this? Yeah. Well, look, they this they've taken this is this is how this is what they do in China. Fencing right? in blocks and, and people. I, well, you know, when the when the when the COVID first broke, Brian, as you recall, they were they were welding people into their but locking welding locks on apartment doors to stop people getting out. I mean, they you know that you know it, I think a lot of the restrictions we've had in this country. It's going to hurt immigration to that far. country, certainly. It's, I don't think there's a lot of people looking to uh, to to get into to, to China from 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 most of the world at the moment. Look, it is a very authoritarian regime. They do seem to be pursuing this policy of zero COVID. They want to get it eliminated completely. I'm not sure that is doable. It's very interesting, Brian, what's happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, which is obviously now basically totally under the control of China, they've had a really severe outbreak of COVID in the last few months. They had some of the highest mm. death rates in the world. So I think that's what worries them. I think they are worried. You're right, it's a, it's a mild variant. But remember, the Chinese vaccines don't really work. They're kind of, you know, they're rubbish. Um, and the lack so far of widespread uh, spread of the disease means that there isn't the same level of immunity. immunity. Yeah. So they could get it much worse. They are worried about that. And they, they're not, you know, they're not stupid. They're okay. worried they get it much worse. Can you imagine a country, okay, maybe like Australia and Canada, uh, that decides, okay, your kid's positive. So we're taking your kid to a gym and we'll take it. Don't say a word. We're going to fence you into your house. We'll take you away from your family and you'll appear when you get a negative test. It's incredibly – this is going to be their comeuppance. They think they can oppress their way towards zero COVID. It's not possible. This is the progressive dream for America, Brian, you're describing as well. I mean I I'm, only, I'm only slightly exaggerating, Look. but this is – this authoritarian progressivism is exactly what they, they – I, I, I read a piece last week actually about uh, – in a different publication about how surprising it's been. Look, you remember, Brian, when the, when the, when the virus first happened and we saw what was going on in China and the incredible lockdowns they were having before it happened here, we all said here – well, that's never going to happen here, is it? Because the American people are independent. They like their freedom, their freedom. They're rugged, individualist, freedom-loving people. They don't trust the government. They're never going to agree to all these restrictions. Well, it turns out, you know, pretty, you know, half the country or at least half the, Demo- the Democratic-controlled states do that. And to this day, Brian, even after they've lifted the mask mandate, there are still people going around saying we've got to, we've got to, keep, the mand- we've got to keep the masks on. There's still a choice. Yeah, we make a choice. That was the biggest shock to me is Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. and Canada. Absolutely. Yeah. You're much more uh, worldly than I am. I'm stunned. I mean, that law by these are very law by Canada's a you know progressive very progressive country and they do t- they do tend to sort of like their government in Canada Australia's a little bit more individuals but they are very law by they do they're a very law abiding uh, country and they they are but even in Britain Britain's been very like America over this very very divided very controversial a lot of British people hate it yeah. but you're right it has it's been eye opening to me it's been eye opening in all of these countries how many people have been willing to go along long after look. In the early days, we were all scared. We were all terrified. We all thought we were going to die, right? So we all kind of said, okay, yeah, well, we'll lock down and wear masks or whatever. As it became clearer that we were doing enormous damage for no real necessary reason at all, 
mo- most of us said, look, it's time to get a proper balance here. We don't need to impose all these rules. But there's a significant part of this country that still seems to think, even right. today, that they've been traumatized be by rules. Anthony Fauci and company that you're <laughs> oh, going to die. Yeah. And your 43 year old is going to die too if they, if they get this sub variant. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, Jerry Baker's here, editor at large of the Wall Street Journal. You going to be able to stick around? Yeah. All right, good. Thank and you. then we have Tyrus. Very similar personality. Yeah. He will eventually be your successor at the I Wall Street Journal. I'm sure it. of it. I look forward to it. Uh, and he'll on with his uh, talk about his memoir. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. It is true to say that the United States is the number one in the world in terms of supporting Ukrainian defense capabilities. And we are deeply grateful to the Biden administration for acting in such a resolved and swift manner. However, I must tell you, of course, as a minister of a country at war, that we, it will never be enough until Russian, Russian soldiers leave their footprints on Ukrainian soil. And that is uh, Dmitry Kaliba. Uh, he is the Ukraine's foreign minister. With me right now is uh, Jerry Baker, editor of the Large of Wall Street Journal and host of Wall Street Journal at Large, Fridays at 7.30. Jerry, uh, we've seemed to have gotten a little bit more aggressive. If you listen to the tone of the words of the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, uh, and we seem to be more urgent and taking more of a uh, leadership role uh, in this fight. Why is that? And do you agree? I do agree, and I think it's important, and I think the reason is that we are entering a crucial phase of this fight here, which look, the Russians have abandoned their first uh, objectives, which was to sort of seize Kiev and have it all over with quickly. You know, that, they, that turned into a disaster for them. Now they're fighting this much more limited and, but for them, potentially much more likely successful fight in the east of the country uh, where they want to take the Donbass, which is that eastern region, uh, which is sort of, which has been the scene of fighting for a long time now, and they want to combine that with the south of the country. So this is crucial, and this is going to be more of a classic sort of pitched fight, pitched battle with tanks and everything else, and, and, to, and, to, and to defeat the Russians there. And I think this is what's changed, Brian. I think there is really now, in a way there has never been in the, the first eight weeks of this fight, of this war, a real sense that Russia could actually be defeated here, that the Ukrainians have fought so well and the Russians have proved themselves disastrous. We are entering a crucial period where the Russians are going to start to run out of um, supply. They're going to, they're going to just basically they're going to get the, the, the soldiers who are fighting there have just been fighting for a long time. They're going to get very, very weary. They've got maybe a month or so in which they can pull off this attempt to take the east of the country. If Russia, if Ukraine can defeat them there, and that means heavy weapons, tanks, planes. Now other NATO countries are starting to send in. That could actually they could actually defeat Russia, and I think maybe the message is also getting through to the White House that look, yes, there's a risk of Putin escalating. There's always that risk, but actually the the opportunity here to really inflict defeat on the Russians is is much much larger than the small risk that he could escalate. A couple of things happened on the battlefield: local Kyrgyzstan counterattacks, you know, Kyrgyzstan, which was mm. the first city to fall. Yep. And there was nonstop protests, and you got the sense that the Russians were realizing we're not going to be able to hold on to this for yep. too long. Uh, there's a pushback there, but Mariupol seems to be a standoff. They're in the catacombs of the steel mill. Yeah. Uh, how do you see this playing out? And do you see this new weapon push in the last minute we have uh, making a difference? 
Uh, yeah, it could help. So, I mean, the weapons. Look, those those fighters who are staying there in the Azov Steelworks in uh, in Mariupol are still there, and the Russians kind of seem to be like, as you said, they certainly seem to be sort of standing off for now. They do have control of most of Mariupol, but they've destroyed it most of it. One other very quick thing I should say to you, Brian. Very interesting news this morning out of the UK. The UK has been saying to the Ukrainians they should strike. Uh, apparently, according to some reports, they should strike at Russian military targets in Russia because that will be a real opportunity to take out the Russian supplies and to take out the Russian air force before they can come and do the damage. If that's true, that does represent a kind of an escalation. As the Russians have replied and said it is an escalation, then we are into a, a potentially a much more serious war. Mr. Baker, thanks so much. Brian, thank you very much indeed. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think it's really significant because you have actually put the put the platform in the hands of someone who cares about what Twitter and the original Internet was supposed to stand for, free speech and open debate on the Internet. However, Jesse, the hard part starts now because even Elon has said that he wants to take down excess spam, a lot of constitutionally protected speech. So what does it mean to take down some kinds of speech but leave others on? That's what's going to make his job hard. And I say there's an easy way to do it. You give the power back to the user. So that is uh, Vivek Ramaswamy talking about the potential takeover. It's over. What am I saying? Potential. It's done. Uh, Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. Now, Jerry Baker, you heard him with the Wall Street Journal. He is not as optimistic as many conservatives are that he's going to provide some balance. Douglas Murray sees a bigger picture than that. He was on. He was the lead guest for Tucker last night as it became official about the Musk takeover at 44 a billion dollars. Cut seven. It's very important indeed because Musk, as he said the other week, recognizes that Twitter is effectively the public square. It's become the public square in America. We may not like that, but that's what it's become. And yes. when the public square suddenly has not just superintendents who can police it, but also people who pretend not to be policing it, but actually are, who ban people and take them away without anyone knowing that they've been taken away or banned, then there's something rotten. The platform needed to be reformed. It desperately needs to be reformed. And here's the thing. As far as I can see to date, Twitter took on this responsibility of being the public square and was totally unfit for the task. Yeah, and it was, and but it ended up being somebody else's agenda. But I think it was a totally different thing uh, back in 2016. I do. So they had to consolidate. I mean, it was amazing how quickly this changed. Two weeks ago, it was a uh, poison pill. We don't want it. You can't have it. We're not going to let them take it. And now it's gone. So we'll see, uh, because right, most of Twitter doesn't go to work. They work from their house. He also commented on that in San Francisco. You might as well just rent out that building. Nobody's there. He's going to change it, uh, and he's going to change it, uh, hopefully for the better. He's going to make people accountable. I'm sure he knows how to run a company better than I did. He's got his tunnel company called Boring. Got it. Uh, he's got SpaceX, obviously, Tesla, understand it. And now he's got this pretty diverse guy, David Portnoy, who's been banned from Twitter, is going back. Cut 10. There's an illusion of fairness, but there is no fairness going around. You know, there's that account, Defiant L's, Business Insider. They had a tweet that said, you know, how great it was that Jeff Bezos was buying the Washington Post. You know, now they had a tweet that said this is the end of civilization because Elon (laughs) Musk is buying Twitter. It just depends what you're looking for. But the, the key thing is... There is no fairness. Anybody who's paying attention, there's nothing fair. There's the illusion of fairness, and woe is me. We're trying to be fair. But anybody who's paid an ounce of attention knows each platform specifically leans certain ways. And you know what the craziest thing is? I 
like Instagram or, or the Facebook or Zuckerberg, I feel like they censor 10x what Twitter does. They all yeah. do it and they all lean certain ways. But there's nothing wrong with fairness. But you're an idiot if you think these are neutral platforms any more so than certain newspapers lean certain ways. So uh, yeah, they're not neutral uh, platforms. There's, there's no way. There's no way about it. And the biggest uh, mistake, obviously, was the New York Post story. Uh, waiting on Tyrus. He should be joining us up there uh, shortly. Uh, coming up now, he's got a big bio out. Talks about his uh, big life at six foot seven. Everything's big about him. And this bio should be uh, should be pretty. It is. I'm been through about half of it in about ten minutes. It really reads extremely well. But looking around, what this really means, Axios did a whole breakdown today. Consider these numbers uh, of what just happened with this must purchase. Estimated wealth, $270 billion, which makes him the richest man in the world. Total employees, 111,000 uh, work for Musk. Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, and that's these, I believe that's the internet firm that's allowing the Ukrainian army to communicate with each other, boring company. And it's about 7,500 from Twitter. Total Twitter followers, 84.2 million, uh, putting him at the eighth most followed. Uh, media relations, media, uh, Musk is by far the most talked about billionaire with 7 million social mentions. Bill Gates is a distant second with 2 million. What to watch for? Musk has said he'll use Twitter to force a rethinking of free speech, pushing for a maximum individual power to say what you say and hear what you have to hear. Uh, love him or hate him, this guy's going to make a huge difference. Now, how did he do it? Morgan Stanley and a group of other leaders offered $13 billion in debt financing. So weird that you have, you're worth $250, $270 billion, but you've got to finance your debt. Debt financing and another $12.5 billion in loans against uh, Musk's stock in Tesla. He was expected to add about $21 billion in equity financing. Twitter did not provide details of the equity financing, but it was all set no conditions for Musk financing that would prevent him from closing on the deal. So they basically said, you're done. So Musk and his other companies, uh, and we'll be ready to go. So we'll see how effective uh, he will be. I think he's going to be great. I'll tell you one thing. Mark Levin wrote me immediately last night. Tucker Carlson hopped back on right again. I think if the president did not put out Truth Social. I think he'd keep his powder dry, but wouldn't commit to not doing it. And now I believe that he'll eventually go back on, but he does not want to hurt himself. Currently, Truth Social, which I'm on, you should get on there. Uh, I think the president has is on, but he hasn't tweeted or done the truths yet. When he does, it's going to be a lot more interesting. And I think he's going to make a lot of news when he's going to instantly comment about Prince Harry, like he did the other day. I don't really need the pre- former president on Prince Harry, but he'll weigh in on that. Like he did with Rosie O'Donnell every step, every step of the way. Letitia James decides they're going to uh, sue the president, brings it to a judge when they say the, the president's overinflated his properties in order to get financing from these banks. Like they need Letitia James to tell these banks how to do their job. So when they subpoena all these documents, he doesn't supply, he doesn't really listen to the subpoena. So now he's getting fined $10,000 a day. What do you think he'd be saying right now if he was on Twitter? He already made some statements, but if he was on Twitter, he'd probably have tweeted it four or five times. He found Truth Social. That would force the media to go there and have it grow. So this is a critical time. So no wonder he said, I'm not, uh, not going to bring it up. So when we come back, uh, we'll find out if there's more to know. See if we'll catch up to Tyrus this hour or not. But I'll leave some time at the back end. Uh, This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It's very important indeed because Musk, as he said the other week, recognizes that Twitter is effectively the public square. It's become the public square in America. We may not like that, but that's what it's become. And when the public square suddenly has not just superintendents who can police it, but also people who pretend not to be policing it, but actually are, who ban people and take them away without anyone knowing that they've been taken away or banned, then there's something rotten. The platform needed to be reformed. It desperately needs to be reformed. And here's the thing. As far as I can see to date, Twitter took on this responsibility of being the public square and was totally unfit for the task. And that was Douglas Murray talking about uh, Twitter, and there's no doubt about it. He was the lead guest, as I mentioned earlier, with Tucker last night. But right now, everybody's lead guest, because his book's out today, Tyrus, Fox Nation host, co-host of Tyrus and Timp on the podcast, you know that, and author of the brand-new book, Tyrus, A Memoir. But he's also the real star of Gutfeld at night, or one of the many, uh, at 11 o'clock. Tyrus, welcome. You know, you just can't be a bad guy. Uh, Greg takes all these shots at you, and that was a great shot. But you couldn't let it go. You're just too good of a human being, man. You just, you're the best. You know what? And that, you're on the high ground. I'm I on the high ground? for that, yeah. All right. Because, you know, Tyrus, I put you on that high ground as well. What an upbringing you had. This was, how tough was this book to write? <clears throat> or was it therapeutic? It was both. Uh, and you're, my favorite book, uh, The President of Freedom Fighter, I love that book. Thanks. And I, I love the courage that it took to write that book. But um, when you write about yourself... It's tough. I can never do it. It's I. I almost didn't do it. Like I, the hours that you spend, when you go back on stuff, it's you like relive it in a certain extent, and then you get angry about it, and you get embarrassed about it. You don't want to talk about it. There was a lot of phone calls. I had a writing coach, Chris Epting, and there was a lot of calls. Like I, I don't want to do this anymore. Take it out. Let's change it. Let's change it. Especially once the the when it was finished, and I sent it off. I was calling him probably every day going, you know what, man, I don't, this is like walking naked around town, you know, and you're basically saying, hey, everyone who knows me, you need to know me more. And that in itself is kind of, it's no, a I, I think it's, I think it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm already on chapter five. I uh, got through it. I know the latest chapter, but I didn't know the earlier ones, but growing up was brutal. Your dad uh, was beaten up on your mom and you saw that and the way you do it to hide, you literally hide under the bed. Yeah, my, you didn't even know what to do until one day you grabbed a knife. Right. You know, I have to I have to thank Lou Ferrigno uh, for getting me through my childhood. And uh, because it, messages on TV are important, and at least, you know, in, in my generation. And seeing a little guy turn into a big guy to solve his problems and then turning back into uh, he, the Hulk. The Hulk, and he'd, he'd solve everything. Well, that's what I tried to do. I had had enough one night, and I just my mother crying every night and always being afraid and having to help clean her up was was always difficult. But I was always making my mom laugh. I always tried to do things to make her laugh because she was she was young. I mean, she was only fifteen when she had me, so she was a, a kid herself. And um, depending on what level of the beating was that night, um, it just got to the point where. I'm her little man. I have to do something, you know. So I decided to do something. The problem was that in the movies, there was four. There was was that. But it was also you see things when you go back and you try to tell the story through your eyes as a four-year-old. In your mind, every movie that you watched, when somebody got stabbed with a knife, they fell down and they died. It was over. It was it. It was done. Like all you had to do was just get it. It was done. So that was my plan. 
And when I stabbed him, he didn't drop on the ground. He turned around like, what the, you know, and then he put hands on me. And as scary as that moment was, and I will always have, you, you see that little puffy dot? That's from him. I'll always have that scar on my uh, orbital socket. It was a backhand, yeah. And then he grabbed me by the legs and was going, because he was convinced I wasn't his. I betrayed him because he was so concerned and paranoid about her cheating all the time. So he was going to throw me out the window of we were I think we were up on a twenty story apartment. He was gonna dump me out the window. But my mother was able to talk him down and calm him down. But that moment, as terrifying as it was for me, was the spark that made my mother made a change. I guess it was okay for her him to batter her, even though that's terrible. But once he turned it on to me, that's when she was like I'm done with this. That gave her the fire to get us out of there. And he did. So you go to your grandparents. But you said flat out, as much as you respect your grandfather, he said he didn't want little black kids in no. the house. No, and, and you're Doing making an interracial it couple, yeah. Uh, yeah. interracial couple. Uh, you point out that in 19, even in 1986, that you were fugitive. Your parents yeah. were fugitives. I came out an outlaw. Right. You know, which uh, we just got silly. We're silly people. But he got their stabilized thing, but your grandfather, see, you knew you couldn't live there. And this is one of the things in the book that I talk about is we, we always worry about, we always focus on the sins of people. Like everyone has a good side with extreme cases, but my grandfather was a hardworking man who took care of his family. He, you know, he worked every day at GE. He, you know, he was a pillar of the community, but his only experience with black people, unfortunately, was my father. So he had all the hatred in the world for a people. Because your dad wasn't a good guy. Not even a little bit. you know. And he wasn't even a bad guy. He was just a scared guy. There's a difference. And, One um, of four, the youngest of 14. Yeah. So he couldn't have us in his household. And it, it wasn't sugar-coated. It, he didn't hide it. It was, you know, a matter of fact, that I still remember the examination because we were, we are light-skinned, mixed, whatever you want to call it. But... Um, he looked at my hands, and my hands have a pink tone to it. My, he looked me over and just said flat out, no, he can't stay here. And he gave my mother a, a choice, and, I, and it was a tough choice. But she had, to, she had nothing. She was 15 years old. with two, or At that time, she was, uh, she was older now. But she had to make a tough decision, and life is about tough decisions. And in the book, I talk about my mother's made decisions. Although you seem unfair at times or hurtful, they were always for our best interest. And sometimes love is not enough. Right. And she made a, a, a choice to go to school and to get her life together. And we went to foster care. You and your brother stayed together. Yeah, that was her only that. that was her only condition. You cannot break them up. Gotcha. Otherwise, you still, deal you, off. You tight with your brother now? No, unfortunately, life goes on. One of the things that I talk about book being the protector and trying to look out for everybody is you hurt their growth. And trying to I tried to pave the road for my brother, not letting him pave his road which leads to resentment, and just as we got older, we drifted right. apart, and a lot of his unsuccesses he blamed on me, and I'm not thinking of it because I'm being successful, even though the pressure of that or whatever. So eventually it just ended up with uh, what always happens with family was financial. Right, and then your mom wants you back. After yeah. you have the, your formative years, you really get to love your foster parents, and they they love you guys, and then your mom makes it clear she wants you back. Yeah, it was um, – my mother, she kind of became like my friend during that time. She would visit periodically, but uh, I was calling uh, my foster family mom and dad, and especially uh, dad. He was, I was his guy. Like we were thick as thieves. Like I, you know, we just I, he had he was a navy man. You know, he he worked for a living. He drove for Coke. Everything in the house was Coke. The biggest 
the biggest betrayal in our household was uh, my foster mom took the back. This is when they were doing taste tests, you know, the Coke and Pepsi battle tests. She picked Pepsi. It was almost a divorce. Ah, like, right. it was a huge thing. I mean, I had Coke swim trunks. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were the Coke. Coca-Cola family. Right. He drove his truck home out of pride. He could have left it in the yard, but he wanted it out in front of the house because he wanted everyone to know he was a Coke man. That was the type of man that he was. And he cut hair on the weekends, and I'd be in his barbershop with him. But uh, them giving us up was uh, one, of the, one of the worst days uh, of my life. But, again, it goes back to they made it fun, even though they were pretty broke up. And you was, there was still probably something underneath that you, you were determined to be successful. You were going to overcome all this, well, would you say? Being broke, being poor sucks. Uh, not having anyone. The the hardest thing about not is that you, you're playing with house money. I wasn't expected to do anything in life. I was just supposed to be another ghetto bastard in and out of jail, you know, just a repeat of my, my father and his lifestyle and, and that things. But I never was comfortable. I never I never wallowed. And I always talk about that. It's it's My grandmother gave me a great piece of advice one time, uh, and it was – I was younger, but she said – Bad things happen to you, and you're, but it's not the things that happen to you. that It's your reaction that you're judged by. What do you do with it when you get hit in the mouth? Do you lay in the ground, or do you clean yourself up? Do you learn how to duck? You know, like you can make the same, yeah. you know, everyone makes a mistake, you know, and, but you can't make the same mistake twice. And that just carried with me. It wasn't what happened to me. It's my reaction. And I didn't always follow that message, and I talk about that on the book, because there's a lot of firings in there and a lot of, a lot of sleeping on couches and stuff, but that's part of the journey. You want to be an educator and an actor. Yeah, yeah. That, what was I thinking with that one? But uh, yeah, I originally wanted to be a zoologist, but – You love animals. Yeah, crazy about them. But, you know, zoologists, you got to do dissections all day. Right. And uh, when <laughs> they had to cut open the baby rabbits, I was a rap. I was done. I was <laughs> just – you know, it just wasn't for me. Plus, football took up so much time. Couldn't do labs and, and football. It was just – it was a lot, and uh, I chose football. Right. Uh, sports helped? Uh, sports saved my life. Uh, no question. My coaches were were fathers, were they were consciences. They held me accountable. Uh, you know, Coach Martinez in particular, uh, he saved my life. I was, you know, uh, I was look, I was just like everybody else. I wanted gold chains, and I wanted, you know, I wanted twenty four inch rims on a Cadillac, and I was willing to take penitentiary chances to get them. And he was the one that that kept me straight. Uh, when I got to Nebraska, it was Coach Morris. Uh, Coach Hoffman, Coach, they got me in love with the weight room, got me in love with the commitment. It showed me that Nebraska way of work ethic, but that all had to do with uh, the sports. Tyrus, congratulations on the book. We just we got to come back and finish this story, but of course you got to get the book and finish it yourself. You can see him on Fox Nation. You see him on his podcast, but most importantly, pick up just Tyrus, a memoir. Congratulations, Tyrus. Oh, thank you, man. Back in a moment, uh, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.